This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is the wood cellar and mixed fermentation director for Creature Comforts Brewing in Athens, Georgia, Blake Tires. Welcome to the podcast, Blake. Thanks for having me, Jamie. We're here in St. Louis, uh, where tomorrow we will uh, enjoy a bunch of wood-aged, barrel-aged beers, uh, barley wines, and stouts at the Side Project Invitational. And by the time this airs, that will have already happened, and the world will entirely know what happened at that. But it's a great occasion to sit down and talk with Blake about making wood-aged, barrel-aged beers, both on the clean and sour side. And I think we're going to delve into uh, a few different topics, both uh, you know, again on the kind of uh, savory barrel-aged side, as well as the uh, sorry, the barley wine and stout side, as well as uh, the kind of sour beer side. And uh, they've been making some really creative beers that our editors and review panelists and writers have uh, been responding to in uh, fantastically positive ways. So, yeah, thanks, thanks for the good reviews. We we like we like that people like the beer. Well, those are all earned. Uh, we have a blind panel. People taste it without expectations, not knowing what it is, and uh, they're responding really positively to it. So uh, we've had some recently that I can't wait to talk about. Before we do that, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with G&D Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel G&D ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize, like Russian River, Ninkasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more, trust G&D to chill the beer you love. Call G&D Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, Old Orchard supplies craft juice blends from the heart of Beer City, USA. As the industry's blending experts, they supply major national brands and growing breweries alike. They've been the best-kept juicy secret in craft beverage for years, but now the secret is out. Breweries across the board are experiencing a seamless transition to Old Orchard as their new juice supplier. So hop aboard the Old Orchard fruit train. Their sample kit starter pack is waiting for you at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Before we uh, jump into the conversation, if you enjoy what you're listening to here on the podcast, we hope you go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button. And if you are a brewer, we hope you uh, consider signing up for an all-access subscription, which gives you access to six issues of the magazine per year, entire uh, digital catalog, all of our back issues through all the apps are uh, you know free with that access. Uh, and it also allows you to uh, watch all of our online classes and some of those classes include a course that we just put up uh, recently. Uh, since we're here in St. Louis, I feel like I have to mention it. Uh, it's a course on brewing uh, big stouts and barrel-aged stouts with Corey King from Side Project Brewing. Uh, once again, that's beerandbrewing.com. Click on that subscribe button. And for all-access sub, you get all of that thrown into one. Blake Tires, let's talk a little bit about your brewing history and how you got to where you are with creature comforts, uh, uh, managing the weird stuff that creature comforts does. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess I've probably somewhat weird, but probably very normal. Um, I started brewing while well, I was a home brewer and then my first professional brewing job was with the startup of creature comforts. Um, so we, 
when did we open? That was uh, spring, April of 2014. Um, so we're about five and a half years old right now. We'll be hitting six this spring. And so when we opened up, um, I was coming from a home brewer background where I, I started off making, like the very first thing I made was an adjunct stout. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was basically, I got into beer. Uh, I guess I should back up a little bit. Um, I'm lucky in that I, my dad, uh, and my family from England side has always kind of appreciated some flavor in their beer. Um, so I would grow up and we would have like Sierra Nevada pale ale at, at family functions or bass or, uh, Boddington's or something of that nature. My grandfather actually used to homebrew a little bit. Um, although all you hear about his homebrew was that the bottles used to blow up in the garage. Uh, and then, so I got, I can help you with that now. I can help you. <laughs> yeah. So I got, uh, I actually took his old equipment that right. he, had, he had retired a long time ago, um, and started homebrewing it with it, uh, just out of college pretty much. Um, and then as I kind of got into a little more, uh, a friend of mine that I knew through, um, my days of drumming, uh, he had lived in Portland, Oregon once upon a time and was way more advanced into understanding what beer was than, uh, than I did at the time. So he, um, he, he showed me how to homebrew where basically I was like, Hey, can I come assist? And they were doing 10 gallon batches of beer and I would come in and just clean and scrub and whatnot, and then take five gallons home to ferment or, uh, just come back the next time and drink it while, you know, I'm helping out. And I was just kind of excited to learn about how to do the whole thing and enjoyed the, the hang. Um, after doing it for a while, I asked the guys that I was doing it with, if I could start writing some of the recipes. Um, and then we started playing around with, you know, get into that a little bit. Um, that kind of was just going. And then I, um, ended up getting laid off from my job at the time I was working at, uh, Turner studios in Atlanta, uh, worked in film and television production for a while. And then, uh, so I just jumped ship and moved to New Zealand, um, to kind of just, you know, be in my twenties and not really have too much that held me down and need to go see the world kind of thing. So I went over there for about a year and I came back and I didn't have any brewing equipment anymore. Um, so I had two friends that had really nice setups. And so I was kind of a gypsy home brewer where <laughs> I'd go brew at their house right. and then just take it home to go ferment it. Um, and just kept that going for, uh, I don't know, a few years. And then, um, but I mean, not a ton of time, I guess yeah, a few years. And then uh, one of the guys that I'd brewed with at that point in time, I knew him, I mean, it's kind of a long story, but basically I randomly knew him from college where his now wife, then girlfriend was my neighbor in college. Um, he happened to go to high school. I think it's right. High school with Adam Beecham, um, who's a brewmaster of creature comforts now. And he was friends with David, uh, Stein, who's also one of the co-founders. Um, and so he's like, I got some friends that are going to start a brewery and they need a, a brewer like you, you should talk to him. And so that was kind of the, the beginning of it all. So then um, I met up with those guys, shared some of my beer, we talked, and I kind of just decided that I wasn't going to give them much of an option. I was like, I'm going to be their guy. <laughs> so right. um, I kind of just kept hanging out, and we all got along, and um, Adam came and joined me for a brew day one day when I was like doing homebrew, and my, my friends were over. I was, I was kind of nervous about that, but yeah, then I just jumped on the train, and we started, uh, they started, they were getting going on 
pushing new recipes together to figure out like what we were going to launch with. Um, and then I kind of came in midway through that or so and, and started working with them. And we started identifying like key points of the process. And uh, we kind of kept that going until even through once we opened up, we brewed everything and did everything together for, I don't know, like three months so really? that we would all be on the same page of like what our SOPs were at the time and kind of establishing like the, the foundation of what our philosophies were for brewing at Creature Comfort. So yeah, that's, that's the roundabout answer of how I got into it. So, you know, all the founders were doing that for every brew for the first three months. Um, well the founders that were the brewing okay. side of things. Okay. Yeah. So it was David, um, Adam and myself and, um, we were doing all the brewing together. Uh, and then, I mean, most everything, but then not even just that, like also the tank cleaning and the kegging right, right. and, you know, the whole process, um, which led to some really long brew days cause it was supremely inefficient. But we, <laughs> we, we knew that once we kind of divided yeah, and conquered, yeah. we had to be on the same page. I, I think there's certainly more conversations in the future to be had with the other folks at Creature Comforts about other sides of the business. You uh, Obviously, if you've got three kind of founding brewers there, everyone has to find a little bit of a specialty and find a niche. You're one of the niches that you now occupy is the you know wood cellar and mixed fermentation side of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about how that developed for Creature Comforts. Sure, yeah. So we had a, a really rapid growth, um, and we still are growing pretty strong, but I mean, we went from, I forget exact numbers, but um, we went from like 1,500 barrels in our first like eight months to then the next year was something like 5,000 and then like 10 and then 20. And um, those are exponential, right? Yeah. Doubling every year. I think we doubled every year for our first three or four years. Yeah. Um, And it just was kind of crazy. And it still is crazy. I mean, we're five and a half years old and we probably have 110 employees now and um, we make a lot of beer, but as, as we grew, um, we all had like little things that we were interested in. And one thing that I was always going to be interested in, um, although I wasn't slated to be the original guy to do what I do. Um, but I was like, yeah, that's, I'm into, I was making mixed firm beers as a home brewer and I was kind of interested in, in that world and what could go on. And so, um, I just kind of started trying to own that a little bit and, and, you know, kind of uh, I don't want to say like claim my territory, but make myself the best option that we had by trying to learn as much as possible and educate myself so that I could, you know, try to make those beers and do it well. Yeah. Uh, what was the uh, initial goal of starting that kind of project? I mean, obviously those are cool beers. Um, they're generally small kind of niche components when you're making a lot of other bigger beers and much, you know, in much higher volume. Um, you know, what kind of point of view did you guys go into, you know, building a kind of wood and mixed fermentation cellar with? It's kind of, uh, it's almost, I mean, it kind of reflects on where we are now still where we don't, we want to be able to kind of make all the beers and it's a kind of challenge to ourselves as brewers, but also as a, as someone like a consumer comes to us, it's, it's nice to be able to offer and say like, you know, you're interested in American IPA, we've got one you can try and we think it's, you know, lovely. If you're interested in a, a barrel aged Imperial Stout, we've got that and we think it's lovely, you know, where we feel like, and then even all the way down to, you know, sometimes we'll make a, like we just made an ordinary bitter, which no, obviously no one really cares about too much, but there are plenty of drinkers out there. I'm, I'm convinced that, you know, <laughs> that, that are interested in that at some point in time, On this side of the Atlantic or, <laughs> well, you know, we just scaled down to make less, but the overall goal I think is that like, you know what, we want to be able to kind of present a, uh, 
you know, worthy uh, take and and beautiful example and yeah. of, of every style. And it doesn't mean that we are actually doing every style, but we we really like to challenge ourselves to be able to to be able to offer a lot of different things. And so. Um, I, I jumped on board and said like, yeah, man, I'll, I'll take care of basically this, the simple stuff is I'm, I'm generally leading the conversation and most of our beers that are above 10% alcohol, you know, stainless or wood, um, and then mixed fermentation. Um, and really now also, you know, trying to get all of our team, you know, I feel like it took me five years to kind of figure out enough to where we can keep making the beers the same way, but I still feel like I'm constantly learning, you know, even last night, just hanging out with brewers and, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it used to be, I think when I was younger, it was the conversation was like, what's, what kind of grain do you use for this or whatever, you know, and you get really specific, but now it's like, uh, you know, what's the philosophy you have about this thing? Like, how do you think about this process? Or, you know, we talk about org charts, I think a lot with other breweries or, you know, things like that, that is like not sexy, (laughs) but are very valuable. It is funny how the older you get, the more it kind of comes down to that. And you start uh, thinking about how you run the business as its own process. In addition to that kind of brewing process, um, but that's not what we talk about on this podcast. So sure, let's, yeah. uh, we'll let's get, talk about beer. <laughs> we'll get into the uh, the subject of how you do brew that beer because that's what our folks want to want to talk about. Before we do that, uh, the founders launched SS BrewTech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing. SS BrewTech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Also, now we have a special message from Pabst Brewing Company. Out of the West, a storm surprised. Swept down on Captain Pabst. That mariner and gentleman, his actions swift and fast. He sailed the seabird against the throws. Routing twain wind and fear. He took haste to protect his kin, but the port was far from near. Pabst's intuition proved him right and bore a friendly coast. The mighty seabird crashed aground. And to that, we raise a toast. For while the seabird indeed was lost, safe were kin and crew. And without this mighty ship to steer, Captain Pabst began to brew. Captain Pabst, Seabird IPA, exclusively available in Wisconsin and Chicago. So let's talk a little bit about, um, again, the beers that you do make. Mm -hmm. Um, You all tend to focus your barrel aging program and wood age program on stouts and barley wines and then on mixed fermentation and some lighter, lighter side of sour beers. Um, maybe we talk first about, uh, the kind of, uh, barrel aged barley wine and stout side and, uh, and maybe we can start that conversation by talking about, you know, what, uh, you just mentioned, looking at it from a kind of conceptual level. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of different ways to approach a wood age program. And I'm curious about how, what you are, what you try to achieve from a flavor and product perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can start talking a little bit about how you go about doing that, um, in the stout category and the barley wine category. Sure. Yeah, man. Yeah. Let's get deep. So it's, 
a recent shift. And so one thing to clarify, so we're, we're a relatively large brewery at this point in time, but the my department part of it is very tiny. Um, so we only have about a hundred or so whiskey barrels in inventory right now. Um, and about 50 or so, um, mixed fermentation barrels and then, um, a few fooders and some stainless capacity. But, um, generally speaking, you know, if, if, you know, if you tell people that like, we're probably going to make around 50,000 barrels of beer this year. Um, so for a huge brewery, I mean, that's, that's pretty large. Uh, we, uh, the our barrel program doesn't really mimic that volume and so where we you know with those beers i'm sure you're producing more tropicalia in a week than your entire beer uh, barrel aging program produces in a year oh yeah 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 for sure and so with those you know there's a few things that you, know, you got to figure out what your kind of your goals are um we want to present world-class beer and like amazing flavor um and also do it in a sense that we can be versatile as a as a, a brewery and be able to release, you know, uh, a few brands a year, um, scaling and, and give us ourselves enough room and and so where we can make the right amount of beer uh, and and make amounts and of different things to keep people interested, but also make it a structure so that we can give ourselves a really high top floor to reach for. Um, and what I recently shifted in to try to accomplish a lot of those things is to be a really blending heavy program where we don't really have any linear progression through any wood at anymore. Um, and everything is purely driven by blending. And, um, I got that certainly from hanging around other brewers, but also kind of paying attention to what wineries do and how they manage their, brands and flavors and and really that comes down to also being a challenge to us on the production side of of how good can we taste and how good can we blend and that's as good as our beers can be yeah that's not a process that's really uh, common in the brewing world you brew a batch you follow that batch through fermentation you may put that same batch into some barrels and then you release that beer when it's done and you're talking about a completely different thing you know basically stacking back different recipes of different kinds of base beers into wood without a very clear idea of what those will be i mean it has to, you know if you're talking about a brewery cfo they have to look at that and say okay, we're going to, we're going down this like, you know, giant leap of faith with you that you will actually be able to produce something that we can sell and, and, uh, you know, be able to re recoup yeah. the time. Well, and well even better. Yeah. The, the counting team's like, what, how do we count for all this? What's going on? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's just, you know, that, that became, because what we, we started off in the other side where it's like, okay, let's brew a batch and throw right. it in. And we had a 30 barrel brew house. So, you know, we're going to yield maybe 12 whiskey barrels or so out of that, maybe up to 14, depending on how that yield goes and whatnot. Um, and then if we do that and we only have space for say, you know, 30 to 50 whiskey barrels at that time, then that means we're producing like three batches of beer roughly. And I prefer a, a solid amount of time in a barrel to, to really get what we're going for. Um, which means like, okay, so we're doing a release like every maybe nine months or maybe a year and a half. And so it's hard to kind of develop any sort of, um, top of mind relevancy for a consumer if you don't have frequency in, in those kinds of beers. So that just wasn't going to work. And it, it, I mean, it's fine. We made some good beers that way, but it, I didn't think it was, it was kind of limiting on our potential, um, and what we could do. Um, I've always been a big fan of, um, like 
lambics and gooses and and then as you start to pay attention to that as a beer drinker and then you start looking around into the world of beverages i mean blending is a very smart and widely adapted tool that hasn't necessarily been used as much across the board in beer um but we certainly weren't the first to do it with stouts or anything i just noticed that that seemed like a, a smart idea to give us some flexibility so now we Basically, I always tell people, like, I think of blending as like painting a picture or uh, to keep the analogy simple, we could say coloring uh, a picture with like crayons, right? And so we, for our stout program, we have five different bases. Um, and we, if we use those five bases and, you know, you start at your top of your tree with five and then put those five different bases into different barrels at different times. And, then, and pretty quickly you start multiplying your options, which are like your crayons in the box. Um, and I feel silly saying this because I actually heard um, Lauren Lim- Limbach from New Belgium the other day saying this exact same thing. And I was like, man, I've got this. I was thinking about it the same way. But, um, you know, it's basically at the time where you're saying, okay, let's make a beer. If you're able to look and you have all these options um, to pick from, you, you can really, it's then the challenge yourself is to really start identifying like how they can work together and what you can create. Uh, and it gives you a lot of range of being able to present complexity, um, being able to uh, decide, you know, what's great. And I think it's an overall a more optimistic viewpoint on how to make beer. So instead of starting with like, here's the recipe and me as brewer, I know what this is going to taste like in a year and a half after it sits in wood. Like that's pretty audacious to start with. Um, but then if you do that and then you say to yourself, as a, as a person of quality that I'm just going to remove the things that don't make the cut, which is kind of how we, I used to think about it. And we used to do that where it was like, you know, this has got some off flavors. We're not going to use that in the blend. This is not good. We're not going to use that in the blend, uh, but everything else is good. We're going to use that in the blend. And really thinking that way, I realized after a while that it kind of makes your blend just as good as your lowest common denominator because you've just weeded out the really bad stuff, but you really haven't reached for how can I make this as awesome as possible? I think if you go the other way and you decide to blend. Not even as awesome as possible. How can I build a unique character to this that feels like it has a point of view and that it expresses something and isn't just the flavors that everyone expects out of this thing that everyone else is making also. Right, right. And so now we basically at every step of the way, it kind of, the question we are asking is how can I make the beer better now and how can I make this project the best it absolutely can be? Um, if we figure out that that's the question we ask everywhere, then you start fixing your processes and you start realizing, well, like this is not allowing me to do that. We need to change that. Or, you know, we're missing this piece of equipment, so we need to change that. You know, what are, what are some of these processes that you've been able to, uh, you know, improve over the last year or two that you've found have made some difference in, uh, and that quality for your beer? The biggest thing was diversifying our barrel stock and creating those crayons. Like we have to start there. So before we, I mean, we started with mainly like one main recipe and and one kind of barrel we really like to use. And I don't regret that at all. Learn a lot by, uh, by sticking, like we stuck to one kind of supplier for whiskey barrels for five years. And I think by only using Willet for five years, we got to understand how 
these different recipes are like these ingredients, like I consider a barrel an ingredient and then your, you know, your, your wart, your, your beer stock is an ingredient, how they kind of work together. Um, now we're trying to multiply our options and kind of, uh, see how that changes now that we are, became familiar with what we have. And so then as we move forward, you know, we can kind of have more diversity, more options and, and really start to understand like where we can play and create new options to blend with. So that was a huge thing is, is getting that, that stock in there. Um, from your, you know, from your standpoint, having, you know, tasting these blends coming out, what, uh, what do some of these different origins of say bourbon barrels, uh, you know, what is some of the range that you taste in the difference of those beers? Um, you know, how much impact do those differences in the bourbon have? And can you articulate what some of those differences taste like to you? Sure. And I will say, and we're still very early in the diversification process. Yeah, sure. Um, so the main thing, like where I really started kind of getting, uh, or paying attention was just simply going between bourbon and rye from the same distiller and, uh, and the same beer in them. And you start to understand like what this actual ingredient of a barrel adds. Um, and very simply put is there, I was like, okay, well, bourbon is going to be adding uh, a sweetness impression overall. Rye is going to be adding a, a, a drying property overall. Um, you know, and, uh, now I'm starting to realize like you start to, you start to highlight the, the grassiness you get out of rye and some of the spice. And those are things that were pretty hard for me to pick up on until I was like really just doing it side by side to vocalize like, Oh yeah, that is actually grassy, which is kind of crazy. Cause you don't, I don't, I mean, you hear it all the time, I guess, as far as tasting notes on, on rye and things like that, but I never really, it didn't register until way, way later than it probably should have. Um, but then, uh, checking out the bourbon and then, you know, like, okay, we're going to throw this beer in here with say like 8% smoked malt and 5% roasted grain. That is like a hundred BUs or 90 BUs coming out of, you know, calculated coming out of the brew house, um, into a bourbon barrel. And then we're going to do this completely opposite side where it's like, uh, here's, another one that's sweet as hell and just a bunch of rich cocoa kind of flavors. And we're going to throw that in bourbon and see how those change over the course of like a year to two years. Um, and to see how you get that range and that shift of, you know, over time in the barrel, your, your BUs are changing your, the intensity of those, um, different edges that you might get from roast or from smoke. They kind of start rounding and changing. Um, you know, smoke is going to change the preservation qualities of that stout in some ways. So are different amounts of roasted grains. So are different amounts of hops. Um, and all these different things start playing out where you just started kind of realizing over time, what time gets you. And that was a big thing I think we had to learn and are still learning. Um, and that's kind of like the never ending quest is understanding, you know, what does this recipe do in 10 months in this kind of barrel? What does this recipe do in 15 months in the same kind of barrel? And then you can change all those variables. And that's where I think, um, it gets kind of maddening to think about how am I going to be a master of my craft when, you know, and it's like, you, is there's, that's what's kind of beautiful about it as well is that sure, it's just an endless sure. quest um, where I, I feel like I'm constantly, especially this weekend, there's a lot of people here that make amazing beers in this category um, and everyone's kind of got a different approach to it. And um, it's just little things where, you know, people talking about their, I mean, we're, we're like joking around and it's like, oh man, don't you love that malt? And everyone's like, what malt? And it's like, oh no, I just let my cat out of the bag. <laughs> 
And um, it's just little things like that where you're like, oh, this is funny. Like everyone's got their little thing like this is my bread and butter. Um, right. But then after a while, you really try to start paying attention to your what you have in front of you. And um, I've been fascinated to see like how far we can go with time um, and then also kind of how we can layer different flavors together and then use those to um, appropriately and, and intentionally add adjuncts um, to shape or react to the base beers we're working with. Let's talk a little bit. You mentioned that, you know, you're now onto five different recipes, you know, for these beers um, in order to provide kind of a, you know, diverse crayons in your little coloring kit. Mm -hmm. Um, What do that? What are those points of difference? You know, obviously what you start with is going to determine what you're able to, you know, get and blend with later on, Um, you know, and so with across those recipes, you know, what do, what are some of the major differences and how do you construct those and how do, you know, what's, talk to me about the intention behind each one of those recipes and why you've, you know, selected those five different recipes in order to kind of, you know, move forward on this. Sure. So the oldest one we have is, uh, and the first one, a barrel aged stout recipe we ever wrote, uh, became a beer called Existence. And that same recipe is also what was in a beer we made called See the Stars. Um, that was the same batch of beer in just two different kinds of barrels huh. uh, for different amounts of time. Um, I would guess that most of our consumers didn't realize that. And that was kind of eye opening to us. It's just like, okay, this is just a difference in sugar content in one way or another by going into a maple bourbon barrel. Um, for the see the stars and the existence, it was just time where that's the one that was like uh, heavy on the smoke. And, and I mean, there's like a 44 pound Fuggles charge at like five minutes on that beer. It makes no sense. But we wrote that recipe specifically, like how do we make a recipe that is supposed to taste good in two years from now? And that's where that idea was. And that's our like kind of our gnarliest, driest, weirdest, intense kind of base. Um, then the next one we wrote was a complete reaction to that. And it's got lactose, it's sweet as hell. Uh, um, and it's just like really rich and I actually find, um, we put that in a rye to kind of counteract the sweetness. And it's really strange. Cause like after a year it tastes like cherry Coke, um, which, you know, love it or hate it. Like that's what it is. So it's fun to blend with. And now we're kind of, uh, making slight variances on it to kind of give it some more complexity. But I just, I, I, first time I was tasting those barrels, like this is just, it tastes like cherry Coke, man. Um, which is kind of pretty interesting. Then moving on from there, we, I wanted to develop, basically I try to think about having uh, alcohol, um, you have your BUs, your roast quality, your sugar, content and all those kind of things and how those are going to oxidize and change over time um, to where, you know, we, we're not really pulling anything out of a whiskey barrel less than um, at least a year. I mean, we're really averaging probably closer to a year and a half to two years on most of our stuff. So we're, we're trying to prepare these beers to go on that journey. And um, we've moved into having some that are kind of down the line and changing kind of the sugar content to give us some complexity in the sugar world there, like using Belgian, Belgian candy sugar or, um, you know, variance variances on like lactose or, you know, whatever kind of thing there, as you can imagine. And then we also, uh, came up with another recipe that, um, was more inspired by using some local grains. Um, so we got some North Carolina triticale, uh, and some rye and we use some, um, local Georgia wheat as well to kind of just have a 
a different variation on protein content and, you know, you know, making one that might be more driven towards like a mouthfeel kind of thing. So overall, the goal is to have different flavors of sugar, uh, different intensities or notes uh, in the darker color qualities, you know, different roast amounts, different chocolate, coffee kind of thing, and then also different sugar levels of you know, this one's sweeter. And then, um, you know, all the different pieces, I guess you look for in a blend, trying to let each beer kind of be their own thing. And we're kind of at still at the origin of that, where that was something maybe six months ago we started jumping into. So now what I'm trying to do is take those ideas to our recipe development team. And as we continue to make these beers to encourage them to go on their own paths, um, which I've oddly found that it was hard to do alone. Like if you tried to write five different recipes, what I noticed is as I started tweaking them, my personal philosophy kept getting put into all of them. And so they all kept coming back towards each other. I was like, no, we got to stop this. So I wanted to throw out like, here's some brand, uh, like parameters and then now let's get the team to take it in new directions. Cause we got to, got to get away from uh like oh well i kind of like doing this and this and it's like oh yeah these are all the same recipe so <laughs> let's get away from that um another big thing obviously a big trend in the styles these, these days is to you know especially with barrel age just to to focus on that kind of textural quality and, and the mouthfeel and you kind of hint on that we're talking a little bit about high protein content and some of the recipes um talk to me a little bit about gravity and starting gravity for these and uh you know and Obviously, where you finish is going to be a result of where you go with these blends down the road. Um, you know, but certainly different starting gravities have different, they age in different ways also, um, and can interact with, uh, you know, with barrels in different ways. Um, you know, talk to me a little bit about those kind of goals in these recipes. Sure. Um, man, it's a weird conversation that's going on in the beer world these days. Cause we, this common comes up all the time when your brewers are talking now about these stouts and it's, uh, it's comically high you know we've got beers that are finishing higher than like our mix from beers start so um you know our first imperial stout recipe uh that plays into existence um that one i think was like a 29 play-doh starting gravity which now sounds like a little baby um, <laughs> at the time it was insane you know we brewed right, like that right. first brew we were trying to get it high and our you know you have some certain constraints in your brew house on how you can get and we ended up boiling that beer um, overnight um, just to try to get it high um, since then we've adapted to going into like a double mash process. Um, but now our recipes are ranging between like 29 to 35 Play-Doh and they're finishing from nine to 15 Play-Doh. Um, and it's, it's bonkers. That's, I mean, but it's, I kind of equate it to kind of like metal, like the music where we're just, you turn everything up, you know what I mean? Like, okay, so the sugar's coming up. That means that it kind of gives you more room to play with on, on how much roast you can throw in there because, you know, sugar's kind of like this blanket that just covers up all the, the nasty parts in some, <laughs> some ways, you know? Sure. Well, sure. Well, so it's like right, you, out the alcohol level and the alcohol heat is up, but the roast is up, but the sugar is up sweetness, you know, all right. You know? Yeah. It's like, it's like if we were having a conversation in a really loud room, both of us would be talking much louder, right. but the conversation wouldn't seem abnormal. But if we're in a quiet room, we're yelling at each other as if we're in a loud room, then it's going to feel really out of place. So it's the same kind of ideas that yeah. you're also now at like a, a headroom kind of level where, um, you know, because of that, you can 
you now have the option of making some smaller tweaks that might just be overpowering, you know, if uh, if you're talking about something that's quiet, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so it's strange, but in that kind of loud environment, it creates some room for dynamics that are, um, you know, that can be kind of interesting. Right. And you're just going metaphor after metaphor on this one. I like it. I mean, that's, I don't know. That's kind of how I make sense of it all to myself is, is by creating some sort of analogy. And the more I repeated other people, then the more I I learn about it. Uh, I find that every time I tell someone an idea I have by the end of it, I'm probably changing my idea, but I'm learning. (laughs) So it's (laughs) good. Um, but you know, it, with these big, huge beers, you want something that's complex. You want to have, um, you know, the best ones, I think, are the ones that you try and then you're like, oh, what was that? You know, it leaves you with something. And so then you want to go back for more. And that every, I think every great beer makes you want to take another sip um, in one way or another. You know, if it's a one and done, then it may not be that great. Um, you know, if you gotta, if you gotta ask a question or if it just leaves you wanting to take another sip to quench your palate, you know, or whatever, you know, it's going to be different if it's a pale ale or an imperial stout, but one that you want to keep jumping into, I think is good. And if you can create more complexity by being able to layer more things under that big sugar blanket, then there's something to that. Um, but it can very easily, you know, you got to find that sweet spot where it's not too sweet. (laughs) One of the, you know, I think the other thing that, uh, you know, defines great producers of artisanal beverages and whether it's wine or spirits or beer is also having a unique and creative point of view. You know, if we look at, uh, you know, the you know, certain wineries, obviously they can drive the terroir of their vineyards and the grapes that they grow and the highest quality vineyards that are producing the best fruit in the best years are going to, you know, at the hand of a deft, you know, winemaker with a fantastic palate and super tight processes are going to produce the best possible wine from there, but it's still going to taste like the place, you know, breweries, because everyone's buying ingredients, you know, generally from the same people, there's some exceptions to that. And there are people that are with, you know, craft malt and locally driven malt now able to kind of create some local flavor there. Um, but there is generally a widespread access to a lot of the same things. Uh, and so that point of view comes from, you know, it has to be driven by the brewers themselves and the way that they approach brewing and the thing that they want to make, um, you know, and hopefully, you know, we're not, as brewers looking at all trying to create the same exact barrel aged stout and off of, you know, some platonic ideal for what this thing might be, but instead looking at how can we build an interpretation that reflects this flavor that feels like us, you know? So for you, um, are there some kind of distinctive elements to these recipes or to this kind of approach to brewing that feel like creature comforts? And, uh, you know, have you defined, you know, even, um, you know, in a broader sense, what what that kind of approach might be yeah i mean man i think we're still on a somewhat of a quest to define that um i mean just recently we made a a mole stout which i mean a lot of people made mole stouts um we're in the you know we're in the city of famous mole stouts right now um and you know with there's a couple here right yeah Yeah, yeah. and then um i think by mexican chocolate mole right yeah yeah um and so once we kind of went on that road um i recently i mean we were having a conversation it's like okay well 
how are we going to do this our best? It's like, well, maybe we'll just go find some really, really great peppers. Um, so I called up a, a chef in Atlanta and got connected to her and, um, her name is Maricela Vega and she's a, a Mexican chef, uh, for a restaurant called Adarm. So relatively, um, new up and coming, like hot chef in Atlanta. Um, and I called her up basically just going to ask, you know, where's a good place to buy chilies. And I got a philosophy lesson on mole, which I'm so grateful for because now it's got all sorts of wheels turning, but basically she's like, mole is a, it's, it changes wherever you are. It's different. If you're in Oaxaca, it's different. If you're Jalisco, like mole is about reflecting these ingredients around you in your region. And you're in the Southeast, you should, um, reflect different ingredients from the Southeast. And so, uh, she started giving us some ideas and I was like, man, you're totally right. So instead of going with the, the tried and true, you know, like ancho chilies, cocoa nibs and cinnamon, uh, maybe vanilla, um, we, you know, used that idea, but then went down hard into the mole world. So we sourced all the peppers, uh, from local farms. We blistered some, uh, we smoked some dehydrated them all in house. Uh, we got local, uh, pecans from, um, Pearson farms, which is in central Georgia. They're famous for their peaches, but killer pecans as well. We uh, toasted those. Uh, we got Benny seeds, which is a Southeast heirloom varietal of sesame seeds that we toasted. Um, we got Oja Santa, which is this crazy plant that's got the essential oils uh, of like root beer and sassafras. Um, and started layering all these things together um, to try to create our like a, a true representation of, of a Southeastern mole and putting it into a stout. Um, and we, we're stoked on how that came out. And I think trying and that's something that's not a new mentality for us that's 100 percent where our mixed fermentation world lives but i think uh we didn't necessarily we couldn't see how to necessarily bring that into our stout world um and now we're trying to do that we're trying to figure out how we can some represent some flavors that make sense for us um that kind of uh you know take the competitive advantage we have of of being the only brewery well we're not the only brewery in athens georgia but you know what i mean like we uh we are uniquely us and we are uniquely where we are in the world at this point in time and that's not a, a new idea you know the whole um, you hear time and place is a constant thing in a lot of uh, food and beverage places and it, it there's a reason i think it's because it, it can distinctly if you listen to the influences around you and flavor and music and and your whatever grows your agriculture then you start distinctly kind of seeing what what you may have that's from a farm next to your brewery that is going to taste better than any other farm uh, in the country. You know, that's what they're all about. So we're trying to figure out how to do things like that, where it's like, how do we make our beers taste distinctly like Creature Comforts, like the Southeast? Um, and um, yeah, that's, that's what we're working on. And I think by by virtue of us having a common palette of blending, we probably put our stamp a little bit on what our blends taste like. Um, but I wouldn't say that we're trying to lock in a particular stout flavor. Uh, I'm really interested particularly by creating different bases on how we can get some diversity in there and, and be flexible. Are there some recent uh, releases over the last six or eight months um, that have been, you found or thought were particularly successful? And, uh, you know, what did you find 
interesting or what did you learn from that those processes yeah i mean there's well there's success from our end on, on i think being able to say well we set out to make this flavor and we executed and there's also the commercial success and seeing how people respond to it and that's pretty um interesting and they're you know two different conversations but they're you got to pay attention to both for sure um i think the mole stout was one where i was like working on it and there's a few beers where we put together and um I find myself terrified in the middle of it. And I'm, usually that's a good thing uh, when it's all said and done because it means we're trying something new and I don't know how it's going to work out, but hopefully it does. And, you know, uh, I guess the great thing about it is, you know, like a chef or whatever, if it doesn't work out, you don't send it to the table, but you want it to work out. So the mole stat was called My Very Own Mole. Um, very excited about how that came out. And I think that was a great success. And I think uh, in the market as well, it's been successful where people are really into it. Um, you know, and it, it's great that we can use that as a conversation piece of working with local farms and all that kind of sort of things. Um, we also released, uh, on the other side, like we released a pretty interesting beer and I've, I was kind of surprised about it, but it was a blend of, uh, whiskey barrel aged stouts. And we have an ongoing series called concurrence. Um, and each one's just a different blend of different barrels. And it was an easy to, you know, use on, uh, the parent brand to have the names for each one and kind of updating the blends um, allows the consumer to follow along a path and not have to reinvent a new beer every time and to be able to say like, yeah, you know the series and, and this is what you come to expect from it. So the, f the fourth one, which is the most recent blend we released, um, I wanted to get off the beaten path a little bit. Like the first one was vanilla. The second one was coffee and cinnamon. The third one was uh, a more like Mexican chocolate kind of vibe. And so those are all like very accessible. And the fourth one um, was based off this weird like hot cocktail that we make at home but it was it's got cardamom uh mint we got mint from a local farm um cocoa nibs a little vanilla i'm trying to think what else is in there but it's it's kind of a a wild kind of combination of things um you know it's inspired by we in that cocktail we use fernet menta uh kalua and bourbon um so blending this all together it, it really has this kind of spiced warming um uh almost like a Girl Scout cookie, like Thin Men on Crack kind of situation, but obviously like everything's turned up a little bit. Um, and I knew that was going to be a little bit different for a lot of consumers. Um, yeah. But it, I mean, our staff said it was their favorite we had made so far. And and usually if our staff loves it, that's a good barometer that consumers going to like it because either our staff is a good representation or our staff is going to do a great job of showing their enthusiasm for it and, and sharing that with consumers. And I think it's a little bit of both, but, um, and if they just tell consumers it tastes like a girl scout, thin mint, yeah, you win. Yeah. 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 Cause people over. see, people see cardamom. They're like, ah, right. I don't know right. about that. And it worked out. Let's, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about mixed fermentation. Sweet. Um, you, uh, you've got a, you know, you mentioned earlier that you've got a, you were homebrewing mixed fermentation beers. Um, talk to me a little bit about the, the fundamental of this program. One of the things that, you know, that I've tasted and, you know, that helps, I think, define your approach is, of course, kind of uh, low acidity. Um, you know, thank God. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, but also, well, you can really focus on delicate flavors, you know, that, uh, you know, you mentioned the Pearson, uh, you know, peach farm. And uh, last year you released a beer called Pearson using peaches. And uh, I thought it was a really beautiful example of a beer that didn't overdo the fruit that allowed that fruit to be a component of the beer in a nice, light and delicate way. Um, 
you know, talk to me a little a bit about that. Talk to me a little bit about um, how you've built and maintained a mixed culture and then produce different mixed culture beers off of that. Sure. Um, well, thanks. My goal is always to, I want acid to be a part of the, the presentation. I don't want to be the star of the show. Um, and so that's something we've, we've always, we've always kind of worked hard on is figuring out how we can dial that in. I mean, it's like, you know, I compare it to cooking where you, you you're adding vinegar or your acid in a, a squeeze of lemon or something of that nature. Um, that makes all the flavors pop, but it shouldn't be the only flavor you have. And so we kind of take that where I want a lot of these beers to be beers that you're happy to drink. And again, that you want to take another sip. Um, so our main philosophies on a lot of these things is kind of restrained acidity. And we kind of have uh, a few techniques uh, are things that I think are ways we approach that. And one is either, um, well, first it's going to be getting to know your own culture. Um, and I'll jump into our culture in a second, but we basically say, uh, we restrain acidity by either starvation, um, or hops or alcohol is kind of our three tools we use. Um, starvation, meaning a lot of times we will do a primary fermentation, um, like for our saisons, for example, our saisons will usually finish around one Play-Doh before our culture is coming into the picture. Um, we just try to brew a very nice, clean, um, well attenuated saison and, um, and then move on to the next process from there. Um, I don't know if that's exactly the reason why some of those don't have huge acidity, but I think it certainly helps. We just limit the amount of fermentation that that bacteria can do. We also use a lot of hops in our mixed fermentation beer. Um, I love the complexity that hops offer in mixed fermentation beers, and I love the job they do of retarding bacterial dominance. Um, and so we'll use usually a combination of aged hops and fresh hops um, and in and, and different rates to you know, you got to balance bitterness, um, a along with that presentation as well, but usually it helps us to really kind of, you know, limit the amount of acid we're producing. And then alcohol is a balancing factor as well, just for the sake, you know, that's something I just took from wine in a sense where I was like, well, wine's like the same pH as beer, but no one's going around screaming. I mean, there are some tart wines out there, but it's not like the acid right, bombs right. that you get in the beer world. And I just realized that a similar kind of situation in the stout world that, you know, the bottom floor is higher, like there's more noise in the room. Um, and so by creating that noise, you're kind of detracting or distracting from that acid quality. Um, and so you can present more things around it and it gives you more of a shelf. So those are kind of the three main things we think about in, in controlling acid. Um, and then the house culture certainly helps where we continuously work with one house culture. Um, and all of our mixed fermentation beers, except for uh, one of them use that house culture. And so by having it in these different places of different, um, you know, ABVs, different, uh, hopping rates, different, uh, grists, you know, all sorts of different things across the rainbow, then, um, that allows us to kind of get to know how it's going to work, you know, where it's going to finish. And we still get some surprises from here and there, but generally it's been pretty consistent. We can understand how it's going to work. Um, and then like approaching our fruit program that you're speak you're speaking about and the mixed fermentation beers in general that one was pretty easy where or a little bit earlier on we started transitioning to making it very regionally focused and locally focused so now we use all local grains in that that program in those worlds and um we really try to restructure our whole um uh, program where about uh, a little over a year ago, we we basically tripled the fermentation capacity we had for mixed culture beer, um, which is 
kind of ironic because it's not a real popular beer style these days. <laughs> um, but we, you know, wanted to grow that. And so I wanted to develop a program that made sense to the consumer. So, you know, we've been making Athena for a long time, which is our Can Berliner Weiss. Right. And I feel like that's a very accessible um, intro to acid and beer um, that gets a, gets a huge amount of reach to a lot of our clients, our consumers, I should say. Um, and then I realized that because our barrel program was so small and, you know, we were kind of in the old mentality that we had of like one batch in, one batch out, you know, kick out the bad, that we were only releasing a couple of other beers a year. Um, and because we were spending so long working on them where they're like one and a half, two year projects, we were charging, a, a, you know, I think an appropriate amount of money, but a lot more than Athena for sure. Right. And so there was a huge gap there. And so what we developed the program now is that uh, what I kind of dubbed as the breadcrumbs was like, if people are going to start in Athena, then we need to give them the breadcrumbs to get to what we view as our highest end stuff. Um, because if you jump from one to the other, then you're likely just spending a ton of money. You're not going to be able to appreciate whatever you just spent your money on and you're just going to feel cheated as a consumer. So. We put a lot of money into, uh, we got three fooders and a lot of stainless capacity. And those fooders are not, those are our, our entry level beers um, as I kind of would, but I don't want to like downplay them. I, I love those beers. But so we have these three fooders and the three different beers in them are day spring common things. And this new beer we just released called always a pleasure. Yeah. And the idea is that those three are kind of the, uh, uh, next steps past Athena that then give you an idea of kind of where we go from there. And so they're all trying to be lower price point bottles of beer. Um, one, you know, is a kind of what I would consider an ultra traditional or our take on an ultra traditional grisette, which is day spring common things is kind of like a combo of old and new where we use aged cascade and fresh saws and local honey and a Saison. So it kind of turns some traditional things on its head, but you know, that's, what I would probably consider to be not too off, far off from a philosophical viewpoint on where Cezanne came from. And then the third one, Always a Pleasure, is a totally different one. It's the most modern one we make where it uh, starts as a lager, mixed fermentation in the fooder, uh, dry hop with citra at a whopping like three quarters of a pound per barrel, <laughs> and then uh, lemon verbena to finish it um, from a local farm. Um, so that one just all in all starts to taste kind of like a lemon. But the idea is that between these three, you kind of get where you go from there. And then we kind of have a next step up where it's like using local ingredients that are kind of cool flavors and whatnot from stainless and then go into the wood cellar where we get longer term and start focusing on really nice, beautiful local fruit. And we do blends for all the local fruit like Pearson you're speaking of, where it's a similar kind of situation where we taste the fruit and then check in with the barrel stock and figure out what blend we can take from the barrel stock that's going to honor the best balance and presentation for that fruit um, and really try to make it so that, again, we're bringing in blending as much as possible to be able to ask the question all the time, how can we make this beer better and how can we present it better? Because um, I just felt like again, like we don't know what that peach is going to taste like this year, how the growing season is going to go, how much acid or sugar it's going to have. Um, and we, we don't necessarily have a perfect viewpoint of, you know, where our beers are going to be either after they spend a year to two years in a barrel. So let's just taste all that in the now and live in the now and, 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 you know, blend to make the best thing possible. And so that's, that's kind of the general philosophy we've got, um, with all those beers is, you know, source local 
and you know use the competitive advantage we have of those local things like having like i think we've got the best peaches in the world so let's you are in georgia so one would think yeah so let's lean on that that farmer and not get in the way right um so that's kind of what we go interesting that you look at this as a continuum between these kind of quick sour pre-boil sour kind of beers like uh, athena or tritonia that goes a um, you know, as a continuum and almost like a, you know, entry level entry drug for, uh, uh, to get people hooked on this kind of a idea of acidity and beer, you know, there's certainly, uh, another alternate prevailing, uh, uh, opinion in the world of some sour beer makers that, uh, these kinds of pre-boil kettle sour, you know, quick, uh, sour kind of process beers are taking the focus away from taking business away from these, you know, quote unquote, better, you know, more traditional, more authentic wood aged sour beers, um, you know, but they work together for you. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, if, if the consumer can't tell why you're charging more for it, then you, we haven't done our job good enough. And and I'm not saying we always are perfect with that either, but it's, you can't blame the consumer for, for they're like, oh man, you don't like this anymore because there's cheaper sour beer available. That means that they never really understood why they were giving you that much money to begin with. Um, so we're trying to have compelling reasons uh, on why there is costs associated with what we say is our better stuff. And hopefully we we try to make it so that that's understandable and that's approachable. And whether it's that because, you know, we, we draw as much attention to the local farms we work with as possible because um, I think, you know, with local being the number one buying decision for consumers as well as something that resonates for a different consumer base than just the beer nerd, um, you know, that's a way, I think, to expand your audience a little bit um, where, like, I ultimately love wine and the inspiration of the presentation of wine and I just figure out, like, I try to pull that into beer which makes me think that there's probably a lot of wine drinkers out there that would be interested in trying these, but the communication channel is not there. So it's really hard to figure out how to cross that bridge. And I think one of those that we try to do is, is to say, yeah, let's use some local ingredients, but back to your original question. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think there's a place in the world for Berliner and there's a place in the world for, um, you know, something that's a little more complex and, you know, we just got to, we got to, we got to do a better job of making the expensive stuff worth it. Part of that's telling a story. And like you say, you know, pulling on the idea of local and the idea of quality and partnering with other local and quality, you know, producers. Um, you know, one of the beers that you all sent us recently was a beer called Yona Skins, where you did that with, uh, you know, a Georgia vineyard and made a, what you call a skin contact lager, mm-hmm. <laughs> which sounds really dirty. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, why define it in that kind of way? And what do you think that adds to the beer? And then once we go through that, I'd love to you know talk to me a little bit more about what that kind of skin pro- uh, contact process looks like. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there comes a lot of points where, you know, for that beer, for example, when we were sitting down, like, what do we put on the label? Like, what do we call this? I mean, my first answer is like, I really have no idea. Um, this the process of this beer does not uh, have historical context where there's a style that's applicable to, you know, where it's and all that style is, is just some common language that lets the consumer know what they're getting into. Um, 
So I didn't really think that was super possible, but I wanted to kind of suggest that there was a crossover here where we could, I mean, that beer to me presents a lot like a rosé and, sure. um, it's one of my favorite beers, uh, cause I like rosé. Uh, so I was like, well, how do we get the wine drinkers to understand what this is and use language that is more used in the beverage world. So like a mixed fermentation beer means nothing to a lot of people. Um, and a skin contact white means nothing to a whole lot of people as well. But there is great crossover there where, um, I think if by, by saying it's skin contact lager, it makes you ask questions and that's, that's all you really, really want is like if people cause taste it and that doesn't really matter what we put on the bottle. If it tastes, if you taste it and it tastes good, then you're probably gonna have a good time. But if you can, um, take that a little bit and it makes you ask questions about how it was made or where this comes from, or if it makes a wine person perk up a little bit, like what's going on there, then I feel like we're doing our job where we're expanding our audience and getting more people into it. Um, because I mean, I think the beer's really good. So then the, the problem is only getting it out there. Um, yeah. if, if you've got that problem, I guess. So, um, yeah, I love it. And so we just kind of stuck with that. And the same thing happened with uh, Always a Pleasure, where a lager goes into a fooder and dry hopped. And so then we just call that a dry hop fooder beer um, because it's it gets too complicated if you try to explain everything. Um, and, and, you know, you don't have the summation of by calling it just like, oh, here's a brown ale. Like you don't, you don't have to list all the things that make a brown ale, brown ale. Yeah, no, and it's, you know, there's, there's so much, you know, so many people that move into the world of brewing from engineering and think about things in very logical, you know, component pieces and want to describe things in what would seem like such a very clear and logical way. But you, you know, consumers come at it from a different mindset and need something that's easily digestible, generally speaking. Um, you know, but that also doesn't dumb it down too much. That, that's intriguing. And I like that idea of making people ask questions. We do that all the time. Like, how do you can I put something out there that's intriguing? You know, um, that just creates a hook that, that makes somebody want to spend more time with this. Because if if they do that, then that kind of interest and intrigue is uh, you know is worthwhile. I think if you can ask a question, then you've got their attention and you can start explaining stuff. If you put something on there that they think they're familiar with, then yeah. they will answer their own questions. Um, and I'd rather be a part of the conversation than not, you yeah. know? So I don't know. Um, I might drive our branding team crazy sometimes, but it's, it's just kind of, I mean, it wasn't a huge release, but, um, yeah, I love that beer. And that beer was a continuation of the first time we kind of tried that out was a beer we call curious 10, which we made a few years ago. Um, but same process, just kind of tweaked a little bit and learned from the first one and, and, uh, produce into a larger scale to make Yona skins, um, where we worked with Yona mountain vineyards. And it's kind of fun too, because Yona, um, in the local, in that regional native American, um, tongue means bear. So bear skins is kind of a fun thing too. So talk to me about this skin contact process and what that looks like in beer. Sure. Yeah. So I kind of riffed this idea. I forget. Um, it was, uh, like an old many years ago before it was easy to talk to a lot of people about this thing. It was some mixed fermentation group that I was in. Um, I forget what it was, but there was a guy who was experimenting in Belgium with blending lambic onto fruit at a low temperature to see how that would change his maceration process. Um, and that just kind of always stuck with me as being fascinating. So prior to either myself or my friend getting into the beverage world, um, we knew each other from drums a long time ago. We were, um, uh, in similar March 
marching band groups and whatnot. That's a really weird explanation. But um, he he and his family went on to open up this winery called Yona Mountain Vineyards in, in um, North Georgia. Um, and I went on to work at Creature Comforts. So then we've always, you know, as we started, kept talking, we we're like, we got to figure out a way to work together. And they were a small growing winery, so they couldn't give us any juice or sell us any, really. They couldn't spare any, um, particularly uh, two seasons ago um, when we were talking about, or three seasons ago when we were really getting into it. It was a horrible year for them. Their, their yields were terrible. Um, so they really didn't have any extra space so or extra juice to give us so we started thinking he's like well i've got these skins you know like after we press it this is trash we do nothing with it and we're just going to throw it out so i was like all right well let me see if i can do something with it and so i started thinking through it i was like well there's not a lot of sugar left in there there's not a lot of juice left in there there's not a lot of flavor left in there but i do know there's a shitload of tannins in there so um instead of trying to just put beer on here and having a polyphenol bomb let's see if we can limit our polyphenol pickup by doing a really cold maceration so that's kind of the trick we use with that beer so we take our lager the beers so the beers life cycle is brew lager uh make a lovely nice little clean lager uh, that lager then goes into mixed fermentation uh, develops some flavor there. Uh, we go from mixed fermentation world then into, uh, where we get into harvest, get the grape skins after they're pressed. So it's really just pumice. It's just skins and seeds and you know, that's it really. Uh, we take that, uh, and throw it into some barrels. So we put, um, I guess, I think it's about 50 pounds of skins per, per wine barrel. Um, and we put those into the barrels and then put our mixed fermentation lager on top, seal it, and then throw that in our walk-in for six months. And that cold time, I think being cold the whole time lets it, uh, really slowly extract as much as possible. And there's an awesome, like the first time we did, it was an awesome, like Jeff Goldblum moment from uh, Jurassic park where it's like nature will find a way. And we found that it actually still fermented in the barrel, but it was so cold that CO2 didn't really want to come out of solution. So we're like pulling nails and getting sparkling like rosé from a barrel in the walk-in, which is just like <laughs> a bizarre, but really exciting huh. experience. Huh. Um, so then after it sits in there for six months and, uh, we, we rack it out, um, and bottle condition it. And so the first time it really ever gets warm as a project is, uh, bottle conditioning. Um, it presents us, this is really clean, um, nice presentation where I, I think mixed fermentation on top of lager gives you like a really kind of clean and crispy kind of mixed fermentation profile. That's just not quite as fat, not quite as heavy. And there's a place for both. We certainly do both, but the mixed fermentation with the lager is nice. And then you complement it with that nice, soft, you know, skin flavor, that wine flavor. And it starts to really taste like, like a nice, clean, lean rosé. Um, we certainly have sulfur issues that we deal with. And we see that in a lot of our lager, uh, then mixed fermentation pr uh, projects. Um, but luckily our culture tends to clean that up after some time resting in the barrel or I'm sorry, the bottle. But that's that's that project. That's an interesting one. I wish we I wish that was super scalable because I really wish that we could make a ton of it and charge very little for it because it's just something that I just I find so refreshing and just want to drink all the time. But unfortunately, it's like a, a year and a half long project each time and 
we slowly just do a little bit more each year. So we'll have a little bit more next year. Well, there's a review in the next issue of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine that everyone should go out and take a look at. <laughs> <laughs> no, th- uh, thanks. That's a really interesting process, Blake. Um, talk to me a little bit. Uh, you know, one of the things we tend to, to close with on the podcast is, uh, you know, what does success mean to you? You know, what is, what's your definition of success for the wood and barrel aging uh, program you know, for, for Creature Comforts? Man, that's, that's a good question. Um, for me, it's kind of twofold. I, I want us as the makers and them as the consumers, I want us both to be having a great experience. And I think, um, you know, it was, it was funny. I was talking to Sam uh, from Other Half about this last night, but not this ex- explicitly, but there was a, uh, it's a parallel where, you know, there's kind of the old adage that a lot of brewers, and we still say it all the time, where it's like, you know, brew what's for yourself and then sell whatever you got left over. Um, and I think that doesn't necessarily always work. Um, and it's... Yes. No, it does not. And it, there's certainly, whether there's a fine line there, and there's certainly a place for the mentality that is behind that. And, and I think that mentality is, you know, you should definitely be passionate about what you're working on as a person creating flavor. But I, you know, I think just as maybe as a chef doesn't probably like every dish on the menu, isn't just like, if the chef's favorite thing is like a BLT, then they're not all BLTs. Right. So they're, they're saying like, I got to create a nice balanced menu that apply, uh, you know, appeals to a lot of people, but where the integrity line comes, cause I think that's really what comes up is the integrity comes from the, and the fun comes from the pursuit of excellence within the framework that may be palatable or accessible to your consumer. And it doesn't mean that like, you don't have to love, every single thing to the max about what you make, I don't think, but you should find joy and pride and excitement in what you are making. And I think that's the way where you take kind of that old idea of what brewers have said and kind of modernize it to like, this is what that I think hopefully really means to a lot of brewers. Um, And success is that, is that if you can make beer that you're extremely proud of and have fun time making and are able then to be commercially successful and, and sell that and, you know, be proud of what you've made, uh, sell it to consumers. Consumers have a great experience with your product. They don't feel like they're ripped off or they've had, they've been cheated. And then at the end of the day, they come back for more than like, that's, that's success. That's a good time. That means everyone's having fun and everyone's signing up for another go. Um, and hopefully we can figure out a way to where we're having a good time making beer and they're having a good time drinking it. And the wheels on the bus keep turning, <laughs> yeah. keep moving forward. And yeah, keep, then, keep going somewhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Then we get to figure out where that wheel goes, you know, and, and instead of uh, trying to figure out how to keep putting gas in the bus, we can figure out where we're going. For sure. For sure. Um, if you enjoyed the conversation that we had today, uh, please go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button and become a subscriber to Beer and Brewing. Uh, g Chillers is ready to meet your challenge. Kickstart your innovation with Old Orchard Craft Juice Concentrates. SS Brewtech has the knowledge and experience you need. And Captain Pabst Seabird IPA is now available exclusively in Wisconsin and Chicago. Blake, if they want to learn more about the Creature Comforts uh, Wood Age Cellar Program, uh, where do they find you? Um, you can check out our Instagram. Um, it's always good to see updates and stuff. And then uh, we have a lot of information on our website, which is creaturecomfortsbeer.com. Um, and yeah, or just Google Creature Comforts and start reading about what we try to say and, and do and 
come visit us sweet thanks for joining me on the podcast yeah you got it thanks for having me yeah. cheers This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.